he used a pencil, a stubby mm-hmm. pencil, which meant his letters were much shorter and uh, far more interesting to historians. Like yeah, I think so. I think so. Okay? Okay, great. Um, let me ask you, sort of picking up off of what we've talked about, if, if one of the themes that's developed in the course of doing this series, and we've talked about 50 people so far, that I'm not sure I would have predicted in advance, is, is, is the nature of conservatism, economic and social, and how it's evolved during the, the period of Dole's public life. If you look at 1976, uh, the Republican Party uh, was in many ways had a Midwestern base. It still had moderate and liberal components. The two candidates that year had each been in Congress, had each um, fought in World War II, had each experienced the Great Depression. Um, I'm sorry, we're talking in 76? In 76, yeah, with with Ford and Dole. I'm sorry, I'm the Republican, on the Republican ticket. No, no, absolutely. Yeah. Um, And I can't tell how many times in the course of my association with him, Dole would quote from the Eisenhower's farewell address, not the part about the military industrial complex, but the part where Ike talks about plundering the future of our children and grandchildren mm-hmm. by uh, excessive spending today. But the point being, that generation, for that generation, the idea of shared sacrifice was a norm. And, and to some degree, I assume, that found reflection in their approach to economics and particularly budgeting. Mm-hmm. Um, fast forward sort of to what we might call the post-Reagan conservative. It's a very different animal, isn't it? Indeed it is. And, and what do you think are the factors contributing to the, the decision by conservatives that fiscal responsibility uh, is no longer a, a defining mantra of what it means to be a conservative? I think if you go back, um, uh, the Republican Party was truly a party of conservatism in the sense that it believed in a set of values uh, in which you paid for what you got. In other words, uh, I like to say they believed in double-entry bookkeeping, (laughs) that there are costs and there are benefits, and you're supposed to essentially do the same thing in government that a household does, namely you balance the budget. And I recall very specifically uh, Eisenhower in uh, a tape I saw in recent years, uh, I I think it may have been 56, I'm not sure, in which he was apologizing to the American people for a $4 billion deficit. And the general view of uh, the Republican Party, and indeed a significant part of the uh, uh, the, the, the political class was that balanced budgets were not only prudent but ethical. Then you had the emergence of uh, Keynesianism beginning to um, uh, arise in the 60s. It wasn't because even Jack Kennedy, for example, uh, was uh, staunchly opposed to budget deficits and indeed when Walter Heller, who was chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors, Uh, coming off the Keynesian base, which had built up very significantly in the post-World War II period, uh, largely in the universities, but not in politics. The first real break occurs when uh, uh, Jack Kennedy was talked into a significant tax cut uh, in order to boost the economy and the argument that the balanced budget goal was inducing significant restriction on the way the world worked. And uh, uh, the effect on the economy of the tax cut actually was precisely what the Council of Economic Advisors had forecast. It never happened again, I might add. You know, that was the last forecast that worked. But... (laughs) It started a very significant erosion in the notion that had prevailed for a very long period of time, namely that uh, appropriate 
fiscal policy should replicate household budget policy. And once the breach was there, then you began to get the two parties exploiting it, the Republicans on the tax side and the Democrats largely on the spending side. I mean, I would argue uh, for with my fellow Republicans, I say, in other words, you're telling me you want a tax cut with money borrowed from the American people? It doesn't strike me as the appropriate approach to the way one ought to be a Republican. And as the years went on, uh, so-called supply-side economics emerged, uh, which in its uh, original form was that you cut taxes and they pay for themselves. When that became sort of very difficult intellectually to maintain, then they moved to the argument, which was actually accurate, namely that a significant part of uh, a tax cut is recouped in the revenues that are in the process of, uh, that occurs because the economy expands. But that became the basic mantra. And uh, finally, uh, uh, as the years went on, and as I say in my book, uh, the Republican Congress, when it came in in 94, still had a general view, partially supply-side, partially double-entry bookkeeping. Then, uh, as, I, as I, the way I put it, uh, Republican uh, Congress uh, sought to preserve its majority as a permanent uh, American vehicle. And uh, sacrifice principle for power, and I said, in, in the end, they achieved neither. And we are now at the state where, as far as economic policy is concerned, it is very difficult to distinguish the Democrats from the Republicans. Uh, and there's a, a very odd thing that's going on in the world, namely that we seem to be having violently negative politics, but if you took all the outstanding legislation that exists on the books and put it up under a Sunshine Act and required that the Congress repass it, 98% would pass, and 98% of that would pass like 95 <coughs> to 5 in the Senate. Right. And so that there is a harshness that is not rooted in fundamentals. And, uh, Do you think it's possibly... In, in some odd way, uh, related to the fact that the, the basic policy differences are not that great, so that you wind up um, either on personal personal issues or cultural issues, which do tend to exacerbate. Yes. Uh, uh, indeed, if you go back, uh, what you conclude, at least I conclude, is everyone's reading the same polls. And uh, the notion um, that you could tell your constituents that they are wrong is no longer there. Uh, my view, the definite, my view of leadership, or actually the definition of leadership in a certain form, uh, is characterized by people who are willing to take their follow, to tell their followers, their constituents, that they are wrong. It is extremely rare today. The vast proportion of, quote, leaders are themselves followers. Yeah. What they follow yeah. is the polls which tell them what they have to believe. And that's a different world. I have to ask you, uh, apropos of what we talked about earlier, in, in the State of the Union address in 1975, President Ford famously said um, something that no one has ever repeated since, that the State of the Union is not good. Um. I remember it distinctly because we discussed that in some detail. And see, the one thing about Ford, and uh, Dole has much the same characteristics, is that uh, the truth matters. Yeah. And that uh, if you have character, you tell the truth. I mean, the, the, uh, I mean, I was brought up 
as a Cold Water Republican. And I very distinctly remember the 64 election in which uh, he took positions which he knew would make him lose. But it was far more important for him to essentially say what he thought was right. And indeed, while he did lose by a huge majority, as you know, uh, he did set into place a new Republican Party, which essentially existed until recent years, uh, in the sense that it, uh, uh, the issue of cultural conservatism was not part of the agenda. And it uh, largely uh, changed. And uh, you're quite right, what distinguishes the Republicans and the Democrats, mostly at this particular stage, uh, are things which are creating problems for people like me. I'm a libertarian. And uh, uh, I'm far more interested in the old principles uh, that uh, Goldwater, uh, Reagan, and Dole have uh, essentially been pressing for years. And part of that was a notion that uh, we live under a constitution which uh, requires compromise. If you are in a democratic society in which everyone is free and encouraged to state their own individual beliefs, of necessity, there will be very significant differences. If the government is going to run for the sake of all of the people, they clearly have got to compromise, not their principles, but their tactical applications of their principles. And that used to be the, um, the mantra of the way the government worked. And Bob Dole was a classic case of that. I mean, he would have fairly strong principles, but when it got down to actually creating government policy, he recognized that if he could get 51%, he thinks that would be terrific. But he also understood, which very few of them understand today, that if you demand 95%, you will get a zero, and we have a dysfunctional, a dysfunctional government right now. Uh, the, uh, as you know, the polls uh, on the Congress are awful, and my only, you know, I think it's like 28 percent approval rating. And I said to myself, "What do the 28 percent know that I don't know?" <laughs> well, you know, it's funny you mentioned that because, again, one of the things that comes through in this whole process that I, I don't know we anticipated, was the degree to which the trajectory of Dole's career, particularly, say, from the mid-'70s through the mid-'90s, um, takes in this transforming period when, first of all, if you look at Ford and Dole, Midwest, there's a, you know, apropos of what you said, Midwestern Republicans of that generation were conservative, and they were consistently conservative. They had a healthy skepticism about government, um, a, a profound suspicion of the notion that government could uh, uh, transform human nature. Uh, but beyond that, you know, they were equally suspect about, I don't want government in the boardroom, I don't want it in the classroom, and I don't want it in the bedroom. And indeed, a host of social issues were things we didn't talk about. I mean, there's a kind of decent reticence yeah, about that's exactly. The word decency was always a critical term. Yeah. You, you just, you know, that was someone else's business. You didn't intrude on their business. And you certainly didn't legislate to regulate their conduct. Yeah. Um, and that obviously is, is all gone. And um, so here you have Dole, whether it's uh, the, the new mantra of supply side or this new kind of cultural conservatism, um, who in some ways is chasing a caboose. I mean, as it, as it recedes over the horizon. Um, and I'm not sure he was ever terribly convincing in that process, trying to present himself as a, a sort of a Reagan-esque conservative. Mm -hmm. um, 
Does that make sense to you? Or yeah, what? no, no. He, uh, Bob Dole trying to be non-Bob Dole is about as difficult uh, a notion as I can imagine. Yeah. Also, the, the, you know, there's the old line about the American people are philosophically conservative and operationally liberal. Uh, George Will famously said in 1980, the American people are conservative. They want to conserve the New Deal. Uh, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, but that, you know, to one side. What about this dichotomy between, you're absolutely right, that in poll after poll, people say they want the parties to work together. Um, they want to transcend uh, harsh ideological differences. Um, and yet, legislators who do that don't seem to be advanced in their presidential prospects. There, there seems to be, at one and the same time, a, a, a desire for legislators to legislate, whatever it takes, and at the same time, a, um, almost a distrust uh, or suspicion of them when they, when they do. Or at least that set of skills don't seem to translate okay. into running for president. And Dole's a classic example. Why do you think that is? Well, uh, I hate to tread on your... Uh, in, in your profession, but I think it basically goes back to uh, Lyndon Johnson's famous alleged forecast in '64 when he signed the Civil Rights Act, when he said, "I'm going to do significant damage to the Democratic Party for the next generation," or something like that. And indeed, as you may recall, we had John Towers, the only Republican in the Senate at the time, and the switch through the two, year 2004 in the Senate of the original sta uh, Confederate states is awesome. What it did is it took a uh, it took a, a U.S. constituency, which was probably, I would guess, 60% Democrat, 40% Republican, but the 60% were a combination of Southern Democrats and Northern Liberals, which is a very uh, difficult uh, thing to do. But in that context, the caucuses within both the House and the Senate uh, were Republican and, and Democrat, and each had liberals, moderates, and conservatives of different combinations. Yeah. And you could not construct within the caucuses legislation until uh, the switch occurred. Now we've got to the point where all four caucuses are either Democrat, severely liberal, Republican, severely conservative. And uh, you get, you, you advance within the party if you cater to the base. And if you cater to the base, uh, you have put yourself so far away from the other side that the, the gap of compromise has just become much too wide, and you get uh, bills going through the, the Congress only because both sides are afraid to be tarred with the one who created the problem, which is not the way you want to legislate. And uh, so I think that what has happened here is that uh, uh, we are uh, in a very unfortunate shape. We're very unfortunate in the sense that uh, uh, the Democrats clamored for a long period of time that they could do better than the Republicans. And when they got into power in last year, they've gone now a year and they've done nothing. In other words, Democrats are now behaving like Republicans, <laughs> and so uh, it's. And another, there's another part of it. I don't know whether this is true, but I've always thought that prior to, I think it was the '84 election, that uh, there was a the mantra which was meant actually partially truthfully that good economics is good politics, and good government is good politics. Uh, then he had that famous remark by Walter Mondale, I think it was a speech during the, during the early stages of the campaign, which he said, uh, President, no, uh, 
I'm going to raise your taxes. So will President Reagan, but he won't tell you. Now, I was in the, uh, I was a consultant to the Reagan campaign at that time, and for three weeks, they think he's aced us, you know, with candor, <laughs> until they saw the polls. And I think that that was a major force engendering negative advertising, which you soon found that the pollsters were telling the politicians, negative advertising works. And regrettably, that wasn't a statistical fluke. And so the issue of compromise is not what gets you elected. What gets you elected is trashing the other side and being highly partisan and being terribly uh, uh, solicitous of your base. And I don't know how to break that. Uh, there is one saving grace which everyone loves, at least, I don't know, some, some of them agree with me, some of them think I'm crazy. Globalization has proceeded to the point where there's been so much in the way of deregulation and lowering of barriers for international trade, then you may remember the bipartisan deregulation in the United States in the early 1970s of uh, uh, the whole transportation industry, then finance, and then uh, the oil and energy industries all went down. And the consequence of that was that global pricing substituted for government edicts. Mm. And so a significant part of the numbers of decisions which government makes, which affects the individual lives of the people, has gone down quite measurably. Indeed, I was speaking to my good friend Steve Breyer the other day, and we were talking about the fact, he was saying, you know, he says, our docket at the moment is zero. Really? And we were talking, and I said, you know, uh, uh, my view of this is that the amount of legislation that is actually forthcoming uh, is gone down very dramatically, which is the reason there are no appealable, there's not a great deal of appeals, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. uh, that uh, it's largely because it's being displaced and elbowed out, basically, by, uh, instead of legislative edicts, market edicts. And you can see it. I mean, for example, in China, it's huge. I mean, the, the, the extent to which you go from Mao to who uh, the proportion of individual Chinese actions that are determined by the state or by the market has gone from you know, 90%, and I, would, I don't know what the number is, but it's a huge drop. Oh, and it's true pretty much across the world. I mean, even with Putin there, I mean, it's, it's still a good deal less than uh, uh, what, what happened. And we're fortunate in the sense because we don't have a government. Fortunately, we have global markets helping us. But uh, the politics have gotten extremely uh, uh, negative, and uh, it's difficult to know where this goes. Well, it's interesting because Dole, in some ways, is almost... Uh Swimming into that stream. I mean, if you go back to the mid, well, the early 70s, of course, he was uh, known as the sheriff of the Senate, the RNC chairman who defended Nixon, mm -hmm. and famous Democrat wars line in, in 76. Well, I interviewed Walter Mondale two weeks ago in Minneapolis, and I, I said, Mr. Vice President, I've been wanting to ask you for 30 years. When you were standing in that debate and, and, and Dole brought up Democrat wars, did you say, Thank you, Lord. And <laughs> <laughs> he said, well, Bob had an off night. But he did say something fascinating. He said, you know, surprisingly, in our preparations, the last thing someone said is, don't be surprised if he blames World War II on the Democrats. And he said, you know, we politicians, we're not very smart. He says, we get a few applause lines, and we just recycle them over and over again. <laughs> but, I mean, that defined him going into the 80s as a, you know, some people said a hatchet man, but certainly, you know, a negative, a partisan, someone defined by partisanship. You, you know who one of his major consultants for that debate was? Yeah. Me. 
really. And when he got up there, and I mean, I filled Bob all full of economic stuff, and I was, you know, all primed he was going to really take yeah. Mondale apart. And he, you know, uh, I'm no longer surprised, but politicians listen very thoughtfully to their consultants, shake their heads, and the consultant thinks, ah, he got it, he's going to do it. And it became a foreign policy debate to a, to a substantial extent. And uh, 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 it, it was a very interesting experience because I was you know, still pretty wet behind the ears seeing that. But, uh, you, you know, I think that was a defining moment uh, for Bob Dole. Fortunately, he's recouped uh, over the decades, uh, but well, he, had to, he was coming out of a hole. Well, and I wonder whether for him in, in 1980, the, the chance as chairman of the Finance Committee mm-hmm. to in some ways remake his, his reputation, or at the very least, you know, he talks about it as the difference between you know, issuing press releases in the minority and actually getting something done. And uh, so a combination of factors. But... You would agree that he's evolved um, significantly from the mid-70s. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Well, he became a very, I mean, he, uh, I don't know whether you've been aware of this, but he was, for example, a significant player in the Mexican uh, crisis. Really? uh, Because... This uh, was during the Clinton? 1995. Yeah, how so? Well, uh... The Mexicans came to us and said, we are broke. In other words, we cannot sell dollar-denominated short-term paper anymore. And uh, I remember a meeting at Treasury in which the finance minister and central bank governors came up, and uh, we sat with them, and it looked as though it was a real disaster, which would have very important implications to the United States. And so the group of us, which uh, at the time uh, was Bob Rubin, who had just become Secretary of the Treasury, Larry Summers, me, and a number of other people in our entourage, plus the Senate and House leaderships, all came together under Clinton's request to the Congress for adequate funds to basically bail them out. And the irony was, you know, one of the, those who were very early on pushing a very large number was Al D'Amato, who uh, is usually, you know, of course, as pressures built up politically, Al was seen running in the wrong direction. Uh, but uh, uh, what was very interesting there is that uh, Dole and Gingrich stood behind Clinton to use the, his authority, which is somewhat ambiguous, of the funds in the Exchange Stabilization Fund, which was, this was the vehicle which developed as a result of the devaluation in the 1930s, where it was a big sort of book profit, and it was created to stabilize currencies. It was never used for that. And uh, Dole supported uh, Clinton against the political uproar, and that was a rather different Bob Dole from uh, what people had thought, and I thought it was a rather courageous act. Were you involved at all uh, in the the whole uh, negotiations surrounding the government shutdown? No, not really. Because clearly there was a a divide between Dole and and Gingrich, and and not not to get overly personal, but between Dole's style and approach Mm -hmm. To, mm-hmm. to getting things done, and what had become the, the sort of more fiery, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, approach of the House Republicans. Did, did you observe that? Oh, in, yeah. In action? Yeah, and, he had to be hiding under the couch not to see it <laughs> happening. <laughs> yeah. and how difficult was that? Again, it's, it's part of this theme of Dole, who's trying to lead a party that in many ways really wants to go in another direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, had it look to me or so? Yeah, or, yeah. I don't recall, actually. I mean, I was, I was observing it with grave interest. Uh, and uh, uh, at least, you know, I was saying, there's this stick, sticking up for principle here. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen, but uh, 
it was more Goldwater than, than it was Bob Dole. That's, that's fascinating. Uh, talking to someone who was in the middle of all this earlier this week, and she said at, at one point this had gone on and on, and Dole was, was really sort of out of patience with his nominal allies. And he finally said they wanted to extend it still further. And he finally said, I'm not going to do that. He said, those people, <laughs> referring to the House Republicans, very few of those people have, have ever had to worry about living check to check, and whether it's Social Security or veterans or other folks. And he says, I, you know, I'm not going to put yeah, the people see, he who was, do. He was through. very severely poverty-stricken during the Depression. As I remember somewhere reading that uh, uh, their family actually rented out the house and they moved down into the basement yeah. to yeah. to live, which is sort of sort of gets you. Mm-hmm. It does, and I've often thought there's a streak of populism in Dole. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, I've, in fact, where we tend to disagree, it's usually when that pops up. Really? <laughs> you know. How so? Can you think of an example? Well, I can't think of any particular examples, but. Uh, 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 I'm more, uh, I'm more economically conservative than he. He's willing to do things which I would be very uncomfortable doing. And one of the reasons, you know, when I actually first became chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors, uh, Bill Simon, who was then Treasury Secretary, oh no, it wasn't Bill, it was, uh, it was Rumsfeld, who was Chief of Staff. He said, we want you to be the spokesman for the administration on economic affairs. And I say, I can't do that. I can't do that because uh, many of the things you're doing, uh, I can't with a straight face support. And uh, I mean, I do support in general, and I do recognize that what I said before, that you're in, we, we, it's necessary to compromise to make the system work. But I can't go out and defend things conceptually if I think they're wrong because somebody's going to ask me a question in which I'm going to say, you know, you're right. I was wrong in what I just yeah. said. Yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, so it, it's in that sort of context where uh, uh, I would be unable to do the types of things that an elected politician yeah. must do. Yeah. How difficult was it? I mean, Dole clearly was not a supply sider. I mean, he, it's just, he's a traditionalist, almost a moralist, when it comes to balanced budgets. And no, I think no, it is a no, product of I, that upbringing I, and that generation. I mean, the crucial issue is you say, well, what's the economic rationale for a balanced budget? It misses the point. It's an ethical issue. It is a symbol that you don't get something for nothing. Right. Or, put another way, you don't borrow to bankrupt your children. Exactly, exactly. Eisenhower Republicanism, in a lot yeah. of ways. It, you know, it, it's essentially an ethical, moral position yeah. rather than an economic position because if you're dealing strictly with the economics, the literal issue of balancing the budget doesn't make terribly much sense, not to mention the fact that uh, we're on a cash budget when we should be on an accrual budget, and they are two wholly different types of phenomena. Yeah. And so... Uh, it's whatever budget you want, you're on, you want to balance. So it's not an economic issue because the difference between the cash budget and the accrual budget is huge. And so if you're saying you want to balance both, you're inconsistent. But you're not, if you're thinking not in economics, but in cultural or in, ethical, in an ethical context. He, in 81, was a very good soldier and... Um uh, was certainly an integral part of the effort on the Hill to get the Reagan package through, mm-hmm. even after it, obviously, this bidding war broke out. And uh, and then, of course, the next year comes Tefra, the effort to take some of the ornaments off the Christmas tree. Um, what, now, what were you doing at that point? Uh, what particularly? In, in 81 and 82, at the beginning, well, the first Reagan term. Yeah, I... Uh, was my only involvement in government. I think I may have been then a member of the President's Foreign Intelligence Advisory Board. I was a member of a number of Reagan uh, commissions and the like, but I had uh, no position in in government per se. 
the what what was your what was your view in terms of what was going on? I mean, in terms of both the supply side doctrine and then the subsequent effort by Dole and others to, to try to rein in the deficit. Yeah. Uh, well, remember the uh, I was one of the authors of the budget plan produced during uh, the 80 campaign. And uh, we struck, you know Martin Anderson, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Marty and I were sort of the two key players. We had known each other for a long period of time, and he's one of my best friends going back very far. And we structured a tax cut, significant tax cut, pretty much what in fact occurred, but we had very large expenditure cuts to go with it. And, and uh, how specific were you in identifying uh, those uh, well, for areas of cut, at least? For our internal discussions, you know, we said this is a very rough budget, but it is doable. But for public thing, you'd never, you're never allowed to go into the details except that wonderful amorphous number, which is not in the budget, called waste, fraud, and abuse, <laughs> which has been the most uh, useful device of the political system since Lord knows when. Which, and, under Reagan, apparently never afflicted the Pentagon. I mean, no. the only waste, fraud, abuse was to fa- be found in non-defense spending. Yeah, but but the, but the, but the, there is no item in the budget which says waste, fraud, and abuse. <laughs> uh, in any event. Um, uh, what happened was uh, David Stockton, uh, as I recall, came in before any of the cabinet officers were appointed, and he set up, uh, went into the Budget Bureau, and actually constructed a real budget. And it was tough as nails. I mean, it, it was not all that far from the numbers we were saying. And I remember Reagan saying in the meeting that that was generally discussed uh, when uh, David kept saying, this is, you know, this is very tough stuff. Uh, uh, he may have been president-elect at that time. I'm sure, yeah, he was. Uh, and uh, Reagan said, you know, so long as we treat everyone equally negatively, I'm fine with it. Uh, he never got into the detail. Yeah. And that was a budget, to a large extent, which we presented, and it got nowhere. With presumably defense being off limits. Absolutely. Yeah. But still, uh, it was essentially constructed. Now, that one of the problems where we, where we ran, then ran into a recession, which... Uh, brought revenues down quite significantly. But uh, the substance of the budget was essentially uh, one which was in balance. And two things uh, prevented from happening. One, of course, was the recession. But probably more importantly is that you could not get even, I think, the majority of the Republicans to go along. And needless to say, when the cabinet members were appointed, they were all screaming bloody murder. You know? <laughs> uh, so that... <coughs> Supply side was not part of the original. It developed largely as a rationale to explain uh, why we should, why we ought to keep going in this particular mode. Because clearly, uh, tax cuts will pay for themselves, and you don't have to worry about cutting taxes. And so it developed there. It's it was a fairly recent. Uh, economic phenomenon. There's always been uh, those, uh, Milton Friedman being uh, one obvious one, who would say economic incentives create fairly significant uh, 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 economic growth and that therefore the net effect from cutting taxes uh, is far less than the original bookkeeping judgment of what the numbers actually were. But as a quote, philosophy, mm. it emerges uh, basically with, uh, 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 I guess, the Art Laffer's uh, napkin in uh, <laughs> the, the, the supply curve. 
And tell me about the origins and uh, history of the Greenspan Commission, because um, clearly Dole was a significant part of all of that. Um, but my, someone has described um, the commission and the action finally taken on Social Security as statesmanship propelled by panic. <laughs> <laughs> the panic presumably being the, the looming immediate crisis yeah. of Social Security. Yeah. Um, first of all, uh, Reagan came in uh, with a, that, that year uh, with a, uh, well, first of all, it had been very clear that uh, the trust fund was going to run out of money. And by statute, uh, you can only pay benefits to the extent that you have basic monies in the fund, so that effectively they would be paying uh, less than 100 cents on the dollar. And that was a political potential disaster, which everyone said, you know, we've got to get it solved. Reagan uh, projected fairly significant uh, budget cuts, which the Congress slapped down all over the place, because he was essentially trying to make it work. And uh, I think it was probably Jim Baker's idea to form the Social Security Commission. And uh, the commission was a very interesting one. Uh, it was truly a national commission, and it had uh, you know, Moynihan and Dole and uh, Elaine Kirkland and Claude Pepper and uh, with a mandate on both Social Security and Medicare. And our first meeting, uh, I thought, would be essentially the only meeting because it struck me as that the easy political thing to do in this whole business was to essentially uh, uh, make clear that the trust fund is a phony. Now, all you have to do to solve this problem is to just move X billions of dollars of general revenues into the fund. System solved. Nobody did anything to hurt anybody. The books are balanced and uh, uh, nobody's benefits got cut and nobody's taxes got raised. Right. And I was all ready to say, you know, uh, if that's the, the judgment of uh, this commission, because we can't, we don't want to confront the real problem, let's get that out on the table and, uh, you know, do with this thing, because the history of commissions has not been exactly <laughs> exemplary. And of all people, Claude Pepper pops up and says, absolutely not. That would make this a welfare program, and it would be utterly inconsistent with the notion of social insur insurance. I will rail adamantly against it, and he scared everyone half silly. The consequence was that general revenues was taken off the table. And uh, it didn't take us very long to also take Medicare off the table because there was no way we could confront that, as indeed one still hasn't. The problem there has not been confronted. Was it easier to take it off the table because the, the impending threat was, was much less imminent in terms of a, a collapse or economic... Uh, it was, it, was, it was the Social Security Trust Fund, not the Medicare Trust Fund. Okay. That's the problem. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, it was, so was it easier to sort of put off yes. Medicare? Yeah. That was, in fact, that was almost the very first thing we did, even before we got involved in you know, what we would do. And we focused basically on Social Security, which is what, what the issue really was. And all of a sudden, uh, we took general revenues off the, off the table, and I would suspect that uh, a significant part of that commission didn't realize that if indeed you did that, you either have to argue that there is no crisis and nothing has to be done, or you have to raise taxes or lower benefits. And uh, Moynihan uh, came up with a phrase which I think sort of got most people. He said, you know, we are all... Uh, we're all privileged to have our own opinions, but 
there is only one set of facts. And so what happened was that from that first meeting, we sent the staff off to developing what all of the facts were. And when they came back and, you know, into the next meeting, everyone looked at the size of what the problem was, and it meant you either had to lower benefits or raise taxes. It, or presumably, and, and maybe some combination of uh, moving the retirement age or... Uh, no, no, well, that's cutting benefits. Oh, okay. Oh, sure, uh, uh, sure. Uh, and the resistance to arithmetic was very evident amongst a number of the members, you know, who were squirt, you know, they, you know, how did I get here, you know, you know, maybe two plus two really equals six, you know, <laughs> you know, doesn't, how do I know your numbers are right, sort of, and they couldn't, a lot, several of them couldn't handle it, uh, and eventually, what, uh, the way the commission was set up, uh, uh, I reported to Reagan and to Baker and Bob Ball, who, I don't know if you remember him, yeah, but he was still around. Did he really? Yeah, he's, uh, he basically reported to uh, Tip O'Neill, and as the commission proceeded, uh, we, would, we brought along the political system so that when we eventually came to a conclusion, the political system had signed off as, as we... And uh, the whole thing went through like a hot knife through butter. But uh, at the time, uh, the question of how to confront these particular issues, uh, the combination of Moynihan and Dole were the critical players. They took the lead, as I recall it, and uh, uh, essentially overwhelmed the, the rest of the commission and uh, even though Bob Ball in his, uh, his memoirs places himself, you know, it's really the decision maker, <laughs> it's, it was an illusion. Uh, and uh, it turned out to be one of the most successful presidential, and I should say national commissions. And uh, the reason is you had uh, two senior senators, both of whom are fundamentally from the same school, historic school of how you compromise. I mean, uh, and they did. And uh, if Dole and Moynihan uh, didn't come together in the way they did, uh, uh, I'm not sure that commission would have worked. What do you, what do you, did you sense uh, what Dole's relationship was with Reagan? Yeah. No, it's. Their personalities were so different, and uh, clearly Reagan's ideological base was actually more conservative than his public persona. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to really hear what Reagan was all about, you had to go back to his campaign speech in '64 for for Goldwater, which is what started them off actually. Uh, and that's really quite uh, it's. You know, it, uh, you know, it was really a strongly uh, held nineteenth-century uh, view of laissez-faire, uh, both in the bedroom and in the marketplace, mm-hmm. and the sharp distinctions that were there were not Dole's view of the world. Dole's view of the world, as I sense it, is a lot more nuanced and smooth and there are no sharp edges. Whereas Goldwater, the world is principled, or needs to be principled, and principles are sharp edges. And Dole doesn't think in those terms, and therefore he is the ideal legislator. (laughs) In other words, he reaches across the aisle, puts his arm around somebody, and uh, talks them into somewhere in the middle, which is a little bit more to his side than the middle, but uh, the guy never knows. But see, that's fascinating because we have a political process now where it seems particularly running for president. It's it's much less about narrowing our differences than exploiting those differences. 
I mean, that's how you get noticed. That's how you get a base. That's how you raise money. Yeah, and, absolutely. And, but, but in some ways, it's a disqualification yeah. for, for leading. Yeah. Who contributes to compromise? Who, who contributes money to compromise? <laughs> well, well put. Two quick things, and I'll let you go. The, the, the Finance Committee itself, talk about the, the significance of the Finance Committee. I mean, what it does and its... Uh, you know, it's it's a well, centrality. Legislatively, the finance committee is in charge of revenues and the raising of funds and the whole tax structure of the United States. And uh, while revenue measures originate in the House, the Senate Finance Committee is a formidable part of the process. And indeed, uh, probably chairman of Ways and Means in the House and maybe four or five senators on the Senate Finance Committee are the ones who really matter. Uh, the, the Ways and Means Committee is too, too large, too diffuse, so that you don't, uh, you don't really get much there. But there are much fewer senators, and as a consequence, they have a larger clout, especially when you have a whole complex tax code with which to deal individual senators could lock onto a specific part of it and be extraordinarily powerful because nobody else uh, is particularly interested and everyone else will tend to follow their lead, essentially. And so it's a, it's a quite powerful... Uh, in the domestic area, it is probably the most powerful uh, Senate committee, certainly in the economic area it is. In the, the other committees, the Banking Committee, Joint Economic Committee, which are the two major other economic committees, are not at the stature of Senate Finance. And Dole was following a legendary figure yeah. in Russell Wong. I mean, the, the spotlight was, was really on him. You know, no, uh, Russell was something. They were, they were fascinating in the sense that they uh, were both old-school uh, different party, different culture, but both conservative. Uh, Russell was not like his father. I mean, it was uh, really... Uh, in, in what sense? Well, I mean, his father was an extreme populist. Yeah, I mean. yeah. Uh, Rus uh, Russell was actually a very staid, uh, conservative, uh, balanced budget, he had the characteristics of a standard old-fashioned Republican voting in the wrong party. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, my impression is that he and Dole got along well. I, but uh, is that correct? Yeah, it is. They, they were they yeah, very much so. Because I mean, I knew both of them, but I never, you know, really had a sense of yeah. them together. Yeah. There was a famous story about <laughs> the first meeting where Dole was chairman, and they when they went around the table and they got to. They called Mr. Chairman and Wong. <laughs> he, he corrected right. it. He says, I not only vote for, for myself, I vote for my chairman as well. <laughs> but I think they did have a very close relationship. Yeah. In fact, I think when the actual transition occurred, uh, Doe was extraordinarily solicitous to Wong. In other words, uh, you know, almost saying, as I've, I, don't know, I may be mistaken, I remember this. But I'll almost say, you know, I'm a temporary warmer of this of your, of your seat, you know. <laughs> yeah. I assume it's not just nostalgia that the Senate was, in fact, a more collegial place. Oh, it's than... not nostalgia. It is fact. I mean, look, uh, I, I mean, I could see it in the, uh, what I would call the party culture, not political party. I mean... <laughs> Pearl Mesta type party culture. Yeah. Uh, when I first came to this town as an official in 1974, uh, I mean, Joe Alsop would have uh, parties in which they have Republicans, half Democrats. There were always two or three senators from both sides, and they were buddy buddy, you know. And you remember that, uh, uh, I mean, Jerry Ford used to shout and yell at Tip O'Neill from 9 p.m. to 5 p.m., then Tip would show up in the White House for his bourbon with his old buddy, uh, uh, Jerry. I mean, it's, uh, is, is it's it? not, that is not done anymore. You go to parties 
now. There's still the ritualistic ones. I mean, the uh, alfalfa club and uh, the gridiron. But uh, I've been to several parties recently. One, one was at uh, Rumsfeld's house, which was filled. All Rumsfeld-type people, conservative, Republicans. And then I would go to another party in which uh, it was all Democrats. And I never recall anything like that in the early years. But says something, at least you got invited to both parties. Well, basically because uh, uh, my wife is uh, <laughs> basically a sort of allegedly nonpartisan. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I, um, at least, even though I'm well known as a Republican, uh, nonetheless, I you know, have friends on both sure. sides of the aisle. So we barely, we barely get there. <laughs> Do you think it's harder to have friends on both sides of the aisle today? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Sure. It's, I mean, it's because uh, you have to make a special exception. It's not a normal thing to do. And mm. uh, when in the early 70s, it was, we were all Americans. We were all trying to forward the United States. And remember, uh, the Cold War was a factor. Now, there is a huge, common, frightening yeah. enemy out yeah. there. And one of the downsides at the end of the Cold War is it added to this issue of partisanship because we could afford to be partisan. During the height of the Cold War, we couldn't. It's I remember talking to Senator Hatfield a few months ago out in Portland, and I said, if there's one thing you could change about the Senate culture today from what you know of it, uh, what would it be? And he said something that several other people have said, a variation of this. So President Ford, Bullock, said, I'd, I'd go back to the culture where people lived in Washington, brought their families with them to Washington. and Before the airlines. And, 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 and socially intermingled That's much that, more. There's, there's something, there's definitely something to that because now... Uh, and I've heard a number of people in both the House and the Senate say this, that were around for a long time. They say, uh, early on, when transportation was far more difficult, uh, a number of senators and congressmen, especially from the West, would stay in Washington for long periods of time. And a goodly part of the country lived here, and they interlaced and to a very significant extent said, now they show up on Tuesday and they leave on Thursday. We never see them, at, certainly not in the evening, and we never see them except uh, in uh, official positions. Right. And that meant that you don't get the collegiality which developed. Did you have a sense uh, of the, uh, I mentioned Bacon, of, of Dole's relationship with Bill Clinton? I'm sorry, with who? With Dole's relationship with Bill Clinton. No, I can't really say. Uh, I've, uh, I'm trying to think of any incidents of which I'm aware. With the exception of that 1995 yeah. uh, issue, uh, I don't recall yeah. anything of significance. Yeah. Can you think of anything else that um, anything we haven't covered that uh, any an anecdote or two or anything about? Uh, uh, I don't think so. I'm yeah. just trying to remember if there's... Uh, I mean, one of the things that's interesting is, you know, the 88 race between Dole and Bush got pretty nasty. And there was some real doubt, I think, in the White House as to what kind of legislative ally Dole was going to be. But it clearly, Dole has this capacity uh, to, to put things behind him. And um, loyalty trumps... And, and, and he's also part of a generation that reveres the presidency. Oh, yeah. If you're president of the United States. Yeah. It, it's, yeah. it's your different person. It used to be, remember the old cliche that uh, whoever gets elected president, no matter what it was, he was. And when he walks into the Oval Office, a different man. Yeah. That was the old thing about Harry Truman. Right. And there's an almost truth in that. I mean, look, I, I thought, you know, the 600th time I would go into the Oval Office, that I'd you know, be blasé, 
it never has become that. There's still something about the issue of the presidency in the White House, which is separate from the people who happen to occupy the position at the time. Yeah. Not, and uh, I may be old-fashioned on this, but that's uh, what yeah, the no, world wants. How do you think don't want to be remembered? I hope it's not as uh, one of the last effective people who could reach across the aisle. Mm-hmm. But he could and did. And uh, was, I would say, a representative of what is good about America. I mean, the, the sense that... We are really unified as a people. I mean, our values are locked in the, uh, the Constitution and the amendments. Uh, it is extraordinary to the extent that aside from pushing and shoving at the margins, uh, there's been very little change in the Constitution, which is a real fundamental document which unites 300 million people. And those who don't like it go elsewhere. And uh, essentially what happens is that children are brought up in the context of revering those values. And I don't think uh, any but a very small proportion know how special that is. Uh Dole is quintessential American. (laughs) That's great. Thank you so much. This was fun. This was the no, 